The Swithin, Book 2, Episode 16. Welcome to The Swithin. Hi there, this is Scott Tellick, author of The Swithin, a series you are listening to right now. And again, today we're not going to have any big um, introduction because I'm running around interviewing for jobs, trying to find real jobs that actually pay money, unlike this series. And um, yeah, that's about it. So we'll get right in. We have three short chapters today. And then next week ends part two and after that we'll start part three and I have to say that's when things start getting really good. I recognize that this part has been a little bit meandering but it sets up some important connections and relationships and stuff like that but in part three there's sort of a very twilight zoney very macabre kind of story going on and then in coming up in part four there is as Merlin says the greatest battle Britain will ever know. And Stonehenge, you know, the making of Stonehenge coming up. And um, yeah, so we'll get to that soon. And oh, to the person who left a very nice comment about this website, or I'm sorry, about this podcast on the website, um, I finally found it. And thank you very much. That was very nice of you. And I really appreciate it because sometimes, you know, it's really helpful just to know people are out there listening and enjoying it. And by the way, I am slowly kind of beefing up and revising the website, which is theswithin.com, T-H-E-S-W-I-T-H-E-N. And so there's a little more content appearing there and everything. So yeah, if you want to go check it out or communicate with me directly, leave a comment or anything like that, you can do so. Or sign up for newsletters. You know you need more newsletters. Um, All right, so let's get right into our chapters for today, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Part 2, Chapter 29. Three days later, the king had gathered all his trusted advisors and the men he held closest to him and introduced them to Merlin. For those advisors who'd known him during Vortiger's time, he did as he'd done with Uther and showed them his true guise as a seven-year-old boy, then showed them the guise of the hermit in his forties, which they of course assumed to be his real appearance as it accorded more with what they thought a wise seer should look like. When this happened, Sir Brantius felt something akin to anger begin to stir in him. He'd not spent all of his years toiling in education and enduring the humiliations of the court while spiraling ever closer to the king, just to be shunted aside by some lucky brat with a few runes to cast. The boy could take on any appearance, and now took on the sympathetic look of a wise and weary adult man when Brantius knew him to be an inexperienced child, and he would show the king that as soon as he could. His peak rose even further as Merlin took the floor immediately in front of the king and Uther, seated slightly to his right, while Roldan, Ulfius, and all the others sat around him in a worship for a circle. Now, said Merlin, the Saxons who followed Hengst remain in the castle that you've been besieging, but you're unable to make any progress there. What do your advisors say about how to be rid of them? Just keep at them, said Uther. They're surrounded. It's only a matter of time before we break in, and then they'll have it. A good plan, said Merlin, but you lose more men every day, and you cannot move forward to make progress in this country until they are bested. Merlin turned to look around at the faces of the gathered advisors. Is there any other way? Rain on them with flaming arrows and flung balls of fire, and burn them in their castle until they come out, said another. 
Another path to take, said Merlin, pointing at the man. You continue to lose men, it's true, and the outlook is not at all certain, but it might work, he said, eventually. Are there any other ideas? Brantius stepped forward, cleared his throat, and kept his gaze down modestly. I have always felt, he began, that we lose much in simply killing these Saxon men, who are very fearsome and skilled in battle. Instead, he lifted his hands, held still, as though in the birth of a great thought, and let his palms fall forward. If they surrender or are defeated in battle, let them join us. He then shook his head as though overwhelmed by the simple humanity of it all. Induce them to offer their allegiance to us, and we only become stronger. Merlin harumphed, and grow further away from the spirit of the British people while also inviting future saboteurs into your ranks, he said, walking right by Brantius with a dismissive wave. No, that's not it. Brantius stood, still in his attitude of great wisdom, while all eyes were once again on the wizard, his words forgotten. His face burned, and he vowed then and there that he would eliminate that little prick. I want all of you to know, said Merlin, raising his open hand, that since the Saxons lost Hankst, all they want to do is give up your land and flee. All the gathered men, including Brantius, gasped. No one had thought of that. They have no leader, Merlin continued. Their food is running out. They're tired and weary of fighting, and they miss the sight of their home and have come to despise the sight of yours. All this you'll find out tomorrow when you have your best man, and here he pointed at Ulfius, who straightened up in surprise. Ride to them and offer them a truce. A truce, Brantius could not help but exclaim. Indeed, the word had never entered their minds. You will offer them a truce, continued Merlin, for three months. The Saxons do not have enough food to last three months, the wizard added confidentially, then made a gesture of wiping his hands. You will offer them safe passage to the sea and give them the ships to return home in. Give them the ships, Roldan repeated in admiration. Ships don't grow on trees, said Brantius. They cost less in the long sum than the constant loss of good men, said Merlin, pointing directly to Brantius. Then he turned once more to address the king. Call on them to leave you the land that belonged to your father. Offer them safe passage out and give them the means to get back to the land they love. You can do this without the loss of a single one of your good men, and they will both be grateful to your wisdom and wary of your power. King Pagdragon could barely suppress his beaming smile, for he could see what a brilliant, unexpected plan the seer had presented him with. Uther looked at him, amazed smile on his face, and shook his head in wonderment. Pendragon took Uther's outstretched hand, and they held for a moment in triumph. Then the king stood to his feet. "'You've spoken well, Merlin,' said the king. "'I will do exactly as you say.' Merlin nodded, and in the next moment, he and a crowd of fawning admirers were following him out of the room. Brantius stood, astounded and bewildered as men gathered around the king, patting him on the back in congratulation." Rid of the Saxons without so much as a fight, said one of his advisors. This Merlin could be an unimaginable advantage to our kingdom. The king, still beaming, nodded. If this works out as he says, Pendragon added, Merlin will never leave my court. These words chilled Brantius as he felt a tingling anxiety spread across his wrinkled forehead. His eyes watched after the shuffling form of the seer as he left, surrounded by the excitedly chattering close advisors to the king. Part 2, Chapter 30 
Merlin had been scanning all through the land and had come upon a few woodworkers who produced works of great intricacy, narrowed those down to those who believed in the creed and the faith, and started visiting them in disguise. Over time, he came down to one who had a small workshop on the outskirts of Cardwell. Merlin showed up one day in his chosen daily middle-aged appearance and approached the man who was sitting outside his workshop smoking a pipe. "'Good day, sir,' said Merlin. "'I understand that you do very fine work with wood.' "'I do indeed,' said the man. "'Have you work for me?' "'I do,' said Merlin. "'I have a small job which will require great skill and dexterity, "'and if you perform it well, I may have a much larger commission for you.' The man nodded and slowly rose, requiring a great deal of effort and time to bring his elderly body into a standing position. "'Let's go in and see what you've got,' he said. "'Is that part of what you'd like me to work with?' he asked, pointing to a large branch that Merlin held in one hand and the canvas bag held in the other. Merlin nodded, and they entered the dark of the woodshop, which was warm and smelled of sawdust. In the center was a large table, and lining the walls were various benches and pegs which held several woodworking tools of every description. It was a welcoming place, and the more time Merlin spent there, the more convinced he was that he'd found the right man. The man, who introduced himself as Upton, patted the table and indicated for Merlin to place his materials there. He put the branch on the table and put the canvas bag down, which landed with a heavy thud. I would like you to make me a staff out of this branch, said Merlin. My intention is that it serve me the rest of my life. That's how I make them, said Upton. That looks like a nice sturdy piece of wood. Merlin smiled and nodded. It is from an immensely great tree in a very wild forest in the Orkneys. Aha, said the man and reached out to caress the bark of the branch. Merlin watched him and liked his manner and way of touching his materials quite well. He then removed a large, flattish stone of about two feet in length, which had been broken off from the massive stone that covered the white dragon. He then removed several other, smaller stones, some of which Blaze had found, and some of which he'd collected himself. Before he could continue, the woodworker's eyes focused on these stones, and he reached forward to grab one. "'Ah,' Upton said, and his eyes raised swiftly to look at Merlin, and he let his gaze sweep the wizard up and down before fixing him in the eyes once more. Merlin was surprised and delighted, tickled by the man's behavior. "'Mm-hmm,' the man said, feeling the stone in his hand, then reaching out to grasp another. "'Oh-ho,' he said, and put them both down. "'You're some sort of cleric?' he asked. "'Cleric,' Merlin spat.' No, you might call me more of a, he searched for the right word, mystic, independent mystic. An independent mystic, Upton repeated. He let his fingers poke amongst the stones that Merlin had brought. And you need the right tool, he added. Exactly, Merlin said. And they both passed a moment in comfortable silence. I would like a staff of about this height, Merlin motioned with his hand. I would like a shaft from this stone, he indicated the white dragon stone, in the upper core of the stick, exposed at the top. I want a piece of it exposed at the bottom end as well, where it will touch the earth. The man remained looking at him for some time, rhythmically puffing away at his pipe. I get you, he said at last. I would like some of these smaller stones cut into small shafts and inlaid in the wood, going down to about a foot from the top, Merlin said. The man nodded. They must penetrate into the wood from the outside and touch the shaft of the central stone within. The man nodded and raised his eyes to Merlin, a knowing and impressed smile on his face. My, 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 he said. What a staff this will be. 
Indeed, said Merlin. They must be greatly skilled workmanship among the stones and woods within, he said. They must lock together with great precision and without the slightest hollow within. Upton crossed his arms. I could cut the stones, he said, but if you really want them cut the best they could possibly be. I do, said Merlin. Then I would recommend that you also engage the services of my friend Lanford, who's a stonemason of great skill and, he reached out his hand and wiggled his fingers above the stones, sensitivity, he finished, to stones. I could arrange it all for you. That sounds quite nice, said Merlin. We worked together quite well, said Upton. We discovered that years ago. He picked up the branch with his arm and held it, turning it this way and that. I have great hopes for the finished result, said Merlin. As I said, we'll consider this somewhat of a test. If you complete this to the level of artfulness that I require, then I shall return in a year or so with a much larger, far more intricate commission. He regarded the man with smiling eyes, for he liked him greatly. One that will bring you much renown and acclaim. The man came around the table and stepped close to Merlin, all the while holding him with his steady, reverent gaze. He took Merlin's hand and held it with great tenderness and care. It's an honor to meet you, sir, Upton said, lowering his head. Part 2, Chapter 31 So the king went with Merlin, Uther, Ulfius, and a few of his other men and advisors and camped near the castle that the Saxons occupied. Ulfius was sent with a group of knights to ride to the gate of the stronghold, and when the Saxons saw him, they sent out a small contingent to meet them. Ulfius told them that the king sought a truce and would allow them safe passage out of the country, as well as give them the ships to leave on if they agreed to depart without further warfare. The Saxons took the news back and conferred amongst themselves. They had little food left to feed themselves, and so some of them, who were wearied by the endless war in that land, argued that they should take the offer and leave right away. But others spoke louder, and they said that they'd come all that way, made all that effort, and all that would be lost if they gave up now. They prevailed, and so the messengers were sent back to Alpheus's group to tell him that they would agree to a truce if the king lifted the siege, but left them the castle. In return, they would give him, each year, ten knights, ten maidens, and a hundred each greyhounds, war horses, and palfreys. Ulfius took the news and told it to the king, who sat down, considering it thoughtfully. It would certainly end the useless loss of men and expenses that were going down the drain in the protected siege, and allow him to use those resources in repairing the newly secured parts of the country. He would have taken the deal, but Merlin would not hear of it. No, the wizard said, they must leave. Becoming entangled in such an affair will only make things worse and lengthen your problems with these invaders. Besides, he continued, they want to leave, for they have nothing to eat. They're just trying to retain their honor, but they've gone too far for that now. Then Merlin strode right by the king and issued these orders to Alpheus. Tell them they will have no truce if they do not depart, but each of them will be taken prisoner and die a shameful death, for we have no need of their people in this country. But if they go, Merlin raised a finger, they will have their lives and safe passage to the sea, where we will hand over the ships they will need to return to their country. Now Merlin turned to the king. I promise you that they will take this proposal and go of their own will, for what they hide from you is that they have nothing to eat and will be starving here within a month if they stay. Then the king looked strange and felt strange, for Merlin had clearly already given the order, and now what was left to him? To repeat it? 
He stood and did exactly that, sending Alpheus back with the message. And when the Saxons heard that they could leave without further trouble, they agreed with stern faces, but in their hearts they were overjoyed. So the king and his party returned, each in wonder that the siege that had, a day ago, seemed endlessly violent and intractable, would end without another loss of life on either side. Many stepped up to congratulate the king on his triumph and his unique, nonviolent solution to the matter, one which none of them had ever even considered or thought possible. And the king took these accolades smilingly, but remained quiet, for in his heart he knew that this achievement had little or nothing to do with him. That's it for today. Join us next week as the story continues. If you get tired of listening over the course of several months, the full ebook and paperback of this novel is available over at Amazon and most other online retailers. You can also order book three, The Void Place, which takes us up to the birth of Arthur, our future king. The full audiobook will also be available and might be by the time you listen to this over at audible.com where you can also find the first book. Just search for The Swithin, S-W-I-T-H-E-N or Scott Tellick, T-E-L-E-K. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit the Swithin website at theswithin.com, T-H-E-S-W-I-T-H-E-N.com, where you can also sign up for email updates. And if you like this podcast and this story, please, please tell a friend or a relative or leave a comment on social media or whatever works best for you. But any recommendations you make to anyone else would be very much appreciated. All right. Thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe or leave a comment or what have you, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.